Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first Grand Rounds episode of Always On EM podcast for the new year, 2023. My name is Vank Belamkanda. I'm one of the two hosts of our show. And as always, I want to remind everyone to please like, comment, and follow us on whatever platform you're using. Don't hesitate to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram or via email at alwaysonem on all those platforms or at alwaysonem at gmail.com. We are thrilled to share one of our more high-impact talks that we have had at Mayo Clinic and presented by a wonderful clinician and speaker, Dr. Liz Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg is an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Health Services, Policy and Practice at Brown University. She received her Bachelor of Arts degree from Miami University of Ohio, her Doctor of Medicine from Tel Aviv University, and her Master of Epidemiology at Brown University. She completed residency training in emergency medicine at Brown University and served as chief resident there as well. She completed her postdoctoral training, AHRQ T32, in aging research at the Center for Gerontology and Healthcare Research at Brown University School of Public Health. She has since been funded by several federal foundations and departmental grants. And in 2017, she was awarded a GEMSTAR, or Grant for Early Medical Surgical Specialists Transition to Aging Award, which funded GAPCARE, an emergency department-based randomized controlled trial for a fall prevention intervention. She is also the recipient of the Paul B. Beeson Emerging Leaders Career Development Award in Aging, which funds GAPCARE too, and combines a fall prevention intervention with the Apple Watch for Improved Fall Outcomes Assessment. She currently leads the Rhode Island implementation of Equipped, which is enhancing the quality of prescribing practices for older adults discharged from the ED. And Dr. Goldberg's specific areas of interest, if you can't tell already, are in improving care for older adults and public health interventions to enhance longevity and healthy aging. Back in November 2021, she gave this talk to our Mayo Clinic emergency medicine team that focused on five common traits of exceptional individuals, as outlined by former FBI agent Joe Navarro. And she used these traits to demonstrate how we can enhance the art of medicine, especially how we provide comfort and healing in the most complex patient encounters, that is to say, our geriatric patients. Please turn up your volumes and get ready. Take it away, Dr. Goldberg. Uh, so I'm absolutely delighted to be here with you today, and I'm trying out a brand new Grand Rounds format. So I'm hoping that you give me feedback and that you also speak up during the talk because this is interactive and I, I want to learn a little bit about you too. So today we're going to talk about the five traits of exceptional people and how to use them to master the geriatric patient encounter. And I want to acknowledge my mentors, Drs. Merchant, Moore, uh, Dr. Shields, and all the people that have helped me do this work. This was not only my effort. Um, and thank you also to the National Institute on Aging for funding this work. I do have two disclosures, and uh, that's that I'm on the public um, Providence Public School Board, and then I'm also a contractor for the National Network of Public Health Institutes to study fall prevention and alcohol use. So what are we gonna to do today? We're gonna to list the five traits of exceptional people. You're gonna be able after this to discuss strategies to improve care for older ED patients. And I'm hoping to trickle in a little bit of my scholarly work and also to help you recognize how you can grow your impact through scholarship. So um, I have a dirty little secret and that is that I absolutely love nonfiction written by FBI agents, which I know is very niche. <laughs> And today I'm going to be talking a little bit about the book, Be Exceptional by Joe Navarro. He's actually one of the leading experts in nonverbal communication, which I think could have such a great impact if we utilize some of these uh, skills that he teaches in his book uh, for our emergency department. And then as an aside, I want to recommend another book that was written by an FBI agent called Never Split the Difference. And 
I think this is a really wonderful book on negotiation that you can read at any time in your life, whether you're a resident about to negotiate your next big job, or if you have to negotiate with patients like I do every day about the vaccine, this is a great way to approach that negotiation. And he uh, also talks a lot about what he's learned being a hostage negotiator. And so it's just a really quick, fun read. So what exactly are the five exceptional traits that we're gonna talk about? We're gonna talk about self-mastery, observation, communication, action, and psychological comfort. And those I would argue are five traits that are really important to being a master clinician and also to being a very exceptional person. So what is self-mastery? Self-mastery is having focus and dedication, industriousness, curiosity, adaptability, self-awareness, and determination. And really to become skilled at something requires dedicating yourself to whatever that challenge may be, no matter how difficult. So that's what we're talking about with self-mastery. And I wanna get some input from you. So please open your chats and tell me in the chat if you're comfortable, is there something in your life that you would like to know more about or would love to study further? It can be anything, it can be medicine related, not medicine related. I wanna, Vank says, I wanna to learn to program VR environments. There are also several people in the conference room that can add stuff outside the chat, any thoughts? Okay. Yes, please speak, speak up. I wanna learn Spanish. Spanish, so important. Art history. I loved my art history class in college. Unfortunately, I could only take one. Hungarian. Yes. Do you do you have a lot of Hungarian in Rochester? No, I'm just married to one. <laughs> okay. Important. To ride a horse. Fly. Okay, those are really great suggestions. Um, so, if, and if you don't have suggestions, I just want you to think for a moment, you know, how do you wanna be known? Because if you think about your legacy, then you can probably also think of what are the next steps to get there. And you really wanna live your life then like you mean it. So if there's something that you don't yet know, but wanna know, um, then, then uh, this is what self-mastery is about. And so, I'm gonna talk a little bit about how to achieve that self-mastery, whether it's becoming a master clinician or uh, learning how to fly or brushing up on your Hungarian. So first is uh, the apprenticeship model. So I don't know about your residents, but our residents always tell us we want more bedside teaching. And why is that? It's because they learn a lot from being in a room with an experienced clinician and having you negotiate uh, with patients about uncertainty. There's also formal training. So for example, our residency training, um, that's one way to have an apprenticeship in, in what you wanna learn about. There's conference attendance. So I guarantee you that there's uh, several mid-career folks in the room and they've probably learned a lot about leadership through attending special leadership conferences. And finally, there's mentorship. And mentorship is, is tremendously valuable. You can have mentorship in research, you can have a career mentor, uh, you can have a mentorship outside of medicine. Um, and if you're a resident in the room right now and you feel like you haven't found the right mentor, um, I highly recommend that you work on that while you're in your residency because it's a great, it's a great opportunity while you're at uh, an academic site. But what else does it take in these three stages of learning to really become a master at something? It's order and priority. So you can have all of the ambition in the world to learn Hungarian, but if you don't actually triage what's urgent, significant, important, and non-significant, you're probably never gonna learn Hungarian. Um, I think all of you can identify with the fact that especially in your emergency medicine training, it's a very busy time. Or if you're uh, trying to train to be a, a physician scientist, it's a busy time. And so it's really important on a daily basis to prioritize what you wanna do. And one way that um, is suggested in the book, which, which I love as well, is creating a daily to-do list. What are the three things that I absolutely want to complete today? so that um, I have a sense of accomplishment at the end of the day and I've made one step towards the thing that I wanna be a master of. And then finally, the third uh, most important step is deliberate practice. 
So you want to rehearse small segments of a process to perfection. And we do this, for instance, when you learn to put in a central line. You, it's, um, you want to do it the same way every time. A lot of people, uh, me included, like to put the instruments in the row that you're going to use them. And um, really practice uh, practice makes perfect. So these are the three things that you really want to want to do. And I'm just going to give you an example from my life um, of what it really took to become a physician scientist. And I know that's not uh, what everyone wants to do, but here I learned a lot when I was in training from my um, older colleagues and how they kind of move through their careers. And so this is, this is one potential path as a physician scientist. So I started in 2009 with my emergency medicine residency. And then towards the end realized I really enjoyed doing communication and administrative work and uh, leadership work. And so I applied to be a chief resident and unfortunately uh, they did give me that role. And it was a wonderful opportunity to figure out if administration, ED administration is what I wanted to go into. And then um, in 2013, I accepted a faculty position at Brown in the teaching scholar track. And for two years, I practiced uh, primarily clinically, had some teaching responsibilities. I actually led the resident research um, track that we have here and matched mentors with residents. And I really enjoyed that, but I realized that really if I was gonna be an academic EM person, I needed to learn to write. And although I attended college in, in the United States and did some writing, I realized I never really learned scientific writing and just approaching a manuscript sounded really daunting. And I also realized I needed more methodology training. So at that point in my life, I decided to go into a postdoctoral fellowship. And you probably have these at Mayo, um, but essentially there's T32s across the country that are institutional training grants. So they're funded by AHRQ or NIH, and they give you two years of protected time so that you can really perfect um, your methodology training. And so I did a master of epidemiology during that time. And then was successful um, getting my first NIH grant, which was a small project grant called an RO3. And if you're interested at all in aging, uh, the GEMSTAR RO3 is a great uh, goal for EM researchers. There's a lot of emergency medicine researchers across the country that have gotten this specific grant. And it's a transition to aging grant. So it's for people that think that they are interested in studying older adults uh, but, and have a small pilot project they'd like to do but haven't received the necessary uh, training and support yet. So I received that award and then uh, two years later um, applied for a K award, which is a career development award through NIH. And I did not get it the first time. Um, and that was, that was really disappointing. And then um, reapplied and was able to, to get that award and also became an associate professor around the same time. So what you don't see here is uh, the amount of prioritization that it took to get there, because I'll tell you, I had my first child as a third year resident, uh, my second child as a second year assistant professor, my third child, uh, I was in my third trimester when I was finishing my master of epidemiology, and I'm currently pregnant and set to deliver next month. And, um, and of course, we're in a nat national pandemic. So I think um, I just wanna recognize the struggle that, that has been here for the last two years to be academically productive. And I think it is a particularly um, challenging time through residency in your early career period to both master something and um, do these apprenticeships and prioritize when you're also building a family. So I, I just wanna recognize that and say that it is, it is doable with a lot of support. So let's talk about the second trait and that's observation. I wanna show you a video and please pay attention to what's happening in the video because I have some questions afterwards. Okay, Mr. Stevens, I'm just gonna give you a quick test here, all right? I'm gonna to touch your hand with this and you tell me whether it feels sharp or dull. Why am I here? You're in the hospital. I said, we're just going to give you a little quick test, okay? Does that feel sharp or Mary, no? Mary lived, Mary lived yesterday. Mr. Stevens, you're in the hospital with me, okay? We're just taking a quick look at you. And I just want to know whether this feels sharp or dull. Oh, is that can Mary? You, Mr. Stevens, can you work with me for one second, please? Can you look, uh, sir, can you look at me? Where, where, where am I? Did you're in the hospital, sir. I just told you that. All right? Can you look at me for a second, no. Mr. Stevens? 
Okay, so either in the chat or in uh, just tell, tell, say it out loud. What did you observe here? <laughs> A young resident very intent on the physical exam. And Jessica says, stop yelling resident, <laughs> sit down. Yeah, a young physician prioritizing getting a physical exam, especially something really um, detailed when there seems to be a lot more going on systemically or you know, uh, interpersonally and it seems kind of like a delirious or potentially demented patient. Yes, who is this speaking? My name's John. John, excellent. Yes, this is a patient that has delirium and I think I think all of us in the room can probably identify what happened here. We have our priorities. We wanna get through our exam. This resident was probably told do a detailed neurological exam and go see the patient. And, um, and he walks in the room and he goes right, right to testing uh, the neurological exam, spends very little time sitting down and, and communicating. And um, these are a couple things that, that uh, are important actually that you, go into the room and much like our oral boards, what are the sights, what are the sensations, what are the smells, what are the sounds? What's the individual behavior of the, of the patient? Are they interacting with you? Are they inattentive? And then I would say a lot of this comes down to knowledge, life experience and training, right? I think if you're an intern and you're told to go in and do a neurological exam, you're gonna be very focused on, on doing that. But there's a lot of benefit of stepping back, observing, trying to, to recognize what systemically is going on. And in this case, it's delirium. And I, and I want to introduce you to a really wonderful tool. So there's a website called eddelirium.org. And it helps you on the website in, in less than two minutes to do a delirium assessment. And this is so important for our patients because we see a lot of delirium in the emergency department. We often call it altered mental status or something else. And it's really helpful to our colleagues upstairs if we can pin down the diagnosis. And also it's very helpful to our patients. What patients really care about in their ED encounter is what is the diagnosis and what's the prognosis? So I'm always saying that to our residents. It's, it's very tough in the emergency department because there's uncertainty, but Patients come in and they want some type of explanation of what is going on and how long they can expect this to go on. So if you can say, I've done this assessment, this is delirium, this is your prognosis with this delirium, our next step is to admit you because your mortality is, is high um, when you have delirium, that's exceptionally helpful. And um, that already makes you a master clinician in geriatrics. So I'm hearing, I'm seeing from Jessica that all of your patients, actually 65 and older, are screened with a DTS and BCAM, which is amazing. Um, but just to back up a little bit for those of you that don't really know much about the BCAM, it's 84% sensitive and 96% specific for delirium when a physician does it and slightly less sensitive when other people do it. And the first step to this is asking yourself, is the patient having altered mental status or a fluctuating course. And how might you get that information? Do you just read the chief complaint? No, you can get collateral from people who regularly see the patient and children understanding their baseline. And yeah, so it's so important with geriatric patients that you find a proxy and you ask them, has the patient been more confused lately? So it can be as easy as that question. So then you would move on. You'd say, yes, this patient has altered mental status or a fluctuating course. So one of the things we observed in the video was that at times he seemed to be, you know, looking at the, looking at the interviewer. At times he was looking to the side. So there's definitely a fluctuating course. Or you might see this in some patients where the nurse goes in and she gets a, she gets a very clear story of what's going on. And you go in five minutes later and the patient's not even looking at you or fidgeting. So I'm sure you've had that had that happened to you and you might've thought, oh, this is a, you know, it's a poor historian, but probably what's going on is they're having a fluctuating course. And this is one of the, the things that should make you think, oh, this patient has delirium. So the next step is, is there inattention? And one of the great ways to test this 
is ask the patient to name the months backwards from December to July. And they should be able to do that pretty quickly without stopping for more than 15 seconds. If they make greater than two errors, so let's say they switch November and October, that's two errors, or if they can't recall two months, then you would say this patient has inattention. And what about if they fall asleep during your assessment? What do you do there? Do you wake them up and say, we need to, te we need to test fine touch. Can you feel this? No, so if they fall asleep during your assessment, that's a pretty good sign that there's inattention going on. So you can just give them, give them credit for this question. Um, okay, so the next question is, what's the level of consciousness or arousal? So does anyone remember the RAS score from, from their ICU rotations? It looks something like this. So anytime you intubate a patient and then you decide on their sedation, you're probably communicating with the nurse about the RAS score. So um, like a score minus one, can anyone say what that might be? It's, it's when they're sleepy, but they're like open their eyes and can switch on. Yeah. So they're slightly sleepy at a RAS score of minus one. And, and sometimes that's what we want to achieve through our sedation. And then if they're, if they're fidgety, that's a plus one. And the further you get to plus four, the more agitated they are. Whereas the more you get to minus, um, minus five, the more obtunded they are. So what about those patients where I heard at Mayo, you don't have a lot of boarding problems, but consider yourself in a normal emergency department right now in America, and um, you have a patient and there's no beds in patient and they've been boarding for nine hours. And for nine hours, you hear nothing from the patient. What do you think's going on there? Awesome. Say it again. Hypoactive delirium. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, um, Dr. Bololio. So that's a, probably a patient that um, is probably should probably be thirsty, should be hungry. They probably should have some pain needs. After all, they're coming in after some acute presentation. If you haven't heard from them in nine hours, that's probably a patient having hypoactive delirium. And that's someone you wanna check in and make sure they're not dehydrated, make sure they're not lying in a wet bed, make sure that their needs are being met. And then finally, the last question um, is if that patient is um, having disorganized thoughts. And so there's actually several questions you can ask about this, um, or you can just um, figure out, you know, is the patient nonsensical? And this patient kept asking about their family member, Mary, and they weren't responding to questions. So you already know that this patient is nonsensical. But another thing you can ask them to do is say, hold up this many fingers, and you can do that with your, with your, um, with your hand, and then th they should show you those two fingers um, with, with their other hand. So that's the B-cam. So what's the third trait? And this, this definitely overlaps with the observation we saw. Um, the third trait is communication. And so sometimes we think about communication as just transferring information from one to the other, but exceptional people and exceptional clinicians actually make communication transformative. And I think most of you would agree that probably what we do in the emergency department uh, is less about the medications we use and much more about how we talk to our patients and how we communicate what we're doing and how we make them feel. That is so essential in an emergency department visit. Um, so I'm gonna share some questions that were developed by um, a stakeholder panel to really get to the core of what older folks care about during an emergency department visit. And what matters most um, is really a question that's a central tenant in geriatrics. And we should be asking this to not only our older patients, but really all patients. So one of the, the model questions is really about ascertaining fear. So what concerns you most when you think about your health and about being in the ED today? And I think all of you have probably had the experience where you've had a, had a patient that's told you a story about several different symptoms that they're having and, and there's no clear unifying diagnosis and 
And then you, then you see your attending come into the room and they, and they ask something like this, like, you know, what, what concerns you the most when you think about your health and about being in the ED today? And they're like, oh, well, you know, my brother just died of a stroke. And then you're like, oh, the person thinks they're having a stroke and it really helps focus your, your diagnostic effort. So that's, so that's a really important thing. People come to the emergency department because often they're in fear and you should you should figure out why. Otherwise, you know what? You're going to do this entire workup. You're going to go back into the room and the patient will be like, well, you didn't really address the stroke that I thought I was having. Um, the second question that you should ask is about sharing concerns. So what fears and worries do you have about your health as you think about what brought you to the ED today? So it really gives the patient an opportunity to share um, a little bit about the background of why they're there. And then ultimately you want to align care. So presentations or communication tools that can, can be demonstrations. So um, aligning care with the patient that's, that's there and making sure that you've heard what matters most to them and that your care really addresses that is important. For instance, some patients may come in and they might be near the end of death and aligning care might mean having a conversation about hospice or, or comfort care and not doing a full court process, starting a central line, intubating, putting the patient in the intensive care unit. Another big uh, part of communication is speaking out. And this can make many of us uncomfortable, although I think ED doctors are often a little bit less uncomfortable about this. Um, so this is a Martin Luther King uh, quote that I think is relevant. There comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor popular, but he must take it because conscience, conscience tells him it is right. So part of being an exceptional person is not, not always going with the flow. And so I'm giving you permission with this slide to really speak out. Speak out if there's something that is affecting your patient and you don't think it's being prioritized. That might be in conversation with your consultants or, com or communication with other team members. Um, right now, I'm seeing a lot of speaking out over um, uh, media such as op-eds. And I want to share a little tool that I've kind of learned over the years, and that's this website, the Op-Ed Project, for anyone that really has an issue that they are, um, that they're passionate about and feel they should speak out about and that people should know outside of the hospital, whether it starts as a patient story, which is always compelling, or whether it is related to a policy issue that's affecting you in your practice or in your research. Um, writing, it's, it's, the chances are that you're an expert in this. You have several years of formal training in emergency medicine. You have, um, you have maybe several years of training in research. And um, it's a shame to just uh, keep that, all that training and all that knowledge to yourself. So um, I'll, I'll share that I uh, decided one day that I really just wanted to talk about how I think older adults were not being served well in a lot of our hospitals because they weren't getting dementia screening and they weren't getting delirium screening screening. And in my case, it resulted in a patient coming to the ED after they were discharged a couple of weeks prior and they were found down and then they didn't survive. And so I spoke about this and I, and I sent it to the Wall Street Journal and they actually, they published the piece, they paid me for the piece. I got so many wonderful comments from it. And I guarantee it was seen so many more times than any of my published um, uh, clinical trials. So I really urge you, if you ever have thought about uh, putting pen to paper and sharing some of your thoughts with the world to go to the op-ed project, they give you a really great framework to do this. Um, so I wanna talk a little bit about a supplement that I received on my NIH grant to study COVID and telehealth, because I know that one of your attendings um, actually agreed to interview uh, with me for this study. And, um, and I wanna share the results that, that we got and it's related to communication um, as well. So we know that the COVID pandemic really threatened healthcare delivery to older adults, about 39% delayed non-essential treatment, 32% delayed preventative care, and 15% delayed essential treatment. And we're seeing the ramifications of this right now in the ED. I'm sure you're seeing patients that are sicker than you saw before because they really delayed coming in or they couldn't access their PCP. So telehealth was sort of um, brought on as a solution to this. And a lot of physician practices really pivoted to telehealth within a one or two week period we actually saw a 154% increase in telehealth visits uh, in March of 2020 compared to the year prior. 
And about 44% of Medicare primary care visits were via telehealth in April, 2020. Um, can I just see a show of hands who's, who's used telehealth either in a patient encounter or with their own primary care doctor? Yeah, so a lot of you, and probably a lot of the telehealth that you've done is new as of the last two years, although I know Mayo was an early adopter. So we were interested in doing a qualitative research study uh, with physicians, geriatricians, primary care, and emergency physicians. And we wanted to look at a nationwide sample and explore what telehealth services were provided, abandoned, what kind of modes people used, what were facilitators and barriers, and how did we meet the needs of older adults or did we even meet the needs of older adults? And right now what we're doing is a national survey. So you might actually get one of my surveys in your inbox. So we did purpose of uh, purposive sampling, which is a qualitative research technique where you ensure that you get um, strata of different physicians, geographic regions, or whatever your um, stratification is. And we conducted 30-minute semi-structured remote interviews by Zoom. And we developed a code book and did framework analysis to reveal themes. And ultimately, we recruited 48 physicians. We, we slightly oversampled geriatricians. And you can see there were physicians from a variety of backgrounds, including metro areas, rural areas, um, academic and community settings. And the median age of our uh, physicians was quite young, was 37 years old, and we think that's because we recruited over social media. And we had slightly more women. And there was an average of seven years in practice. And what we found is that 58% had actually previously used some form of telehealth, and 29% of physicians reported using video visits before March 2020. So there are several strategies that we came up with to how to meet older adult needs uh, during the pandemic via telehealth. And I'm gonna share some of the, the quotations from people because it does get to the core of this issue of how do we communicate with people. Um, so a geriatrician said, I'm lucky at the VA, we can actually send VA issued iPads to people who need them to start a mobile home visit. And this was a major theme throughout all of our conversations is that a lot many older adult, adults and folks in uh, under-resourced settings don't actually have access to devices or the broadband to connect with people. Another primary care physician said, our staff calls patients a week ahead of time to make sure that they have a Zoom link and can help troubleshoot uh, the technology for patients. And one of the EM docs said, making sure that they can hear you, making sure that you're talking at a cadence that works for them and gives them the time to hear you listen, process and respond I think I would probably spend more time providing instructions. So this goes back to the case that we actually saw the patient in the video. You have to make sure that they're actually responding to you and interacting in your exam. If you're just doing the exam to someone, that's not a very effective um, clinical exam or neurological exam. And many of our older adults, they actually don't hear well and uh, they need you to pause and you need to assess whether they're hearing you. Otherwise you can be talking to them for two or three minutes or four minutes and they haven't heard a single word you're saying and then you have to repeat yourself. So often when I go in the room and I know that there's some hearing loss, I ask them which ear is better and then I go and I sit right next to that ear or you can get a pocket, um, a pocket device that helps with their hearing or make sure their hearing aids are in. All these things need to be assessed. So slow your speaking speed, spend more time on instructions, leave room for questions. You wanna mirror the tone and formality. You also need to discuss telehealth privacy concerns. So we sp spoke to many physicians who said, our patients absolutely would not do telehealth because they were concerned about Zoom bombing or they were concerned that their medical information would get out. And so addressing those concerns with patients up front is really helpful. And in the ED, many EDs around the country started mounting devices. And the problem, especially with patients with, um, with delirium was that they couldn't turn the screen to them. They were kind of confused by the screen. So that might be a population that doesn't benefit as much from telehealth. Some other quotes were that um, for emergency physicians said, despite that you can put the highest volume you can, sometimes it's hard for them to hear well. So then RED will try to give them hearing amplifiers if they don't have their hearing aids. 
A geriatrician said some very passionate medical students did a lot of outreach to our patients, spent hours with them one-on-one -on -one over the phone to teach them how to use video or Zoom. And this is one thing that we know about older adults and technology that often, once they're trained, they can use this technology. You probably have that experience with, with your older parents or older grandparents that, you know, once you come over there and you show them uh, the steps that they need to take, they, they often can learn, um, but they're not digital natives like you. You know, the, the people in the room right now that are between their 20s and 40s, they grew up with cell phones and smartphones and, um, and you learned how to use those devices uh, through that, that, uh, that training. But many older adults over the age of 70 haven't. And one really optimistic thing we heard from geriatricians is that maybe their 90-year-olds aren't able to do this, but they expect in one or two generations, everybody will be facile with this technology and will help us communicate. There were several barriers that we came up with. For instance, do we have validated cognitive assessments on telehealth? Um, the need for cross-state licensure is really burdensome. Um, we really need competitive reimbursement with in-person visits. So for a long time, just conducting telephone calls or um, connecting with people over video wasn't reimbursed the same as in-person visits. So many, we heard that many administrators said, we just can't do the telehealth because the reimbursement rates are lower. And, there were policy um, fixes for that during COVID, but we're hopeful that those will stay, stay put. So to, to close on this theme of communication, um, some of the important strategies that you can use in your daily clinical practice is just recognizing, recognizing the needs of the patient, either by asking those questions that I, that I showed you or um, by asking um, other questions that you've learned in your practice. Affirming, so acknowledging the person, the commitment, their strengths, their efforts and intentions. Um, mirroring is really important. And um, it's most useful with the tone of voice or gestures when the tone of voice or gestures are inconsistent with their words. So if the patient says, um, don't worry, I'm fine, but their face tells you they're not at all fine. And what you should really do is respond and reflect that back to them, really? From the way you're saying that, it doesn't sound like you're fine. And that's a great conversation starter. And that's really how, um, how you affect change. And many of these techniques that Joe Navarro talks about in his book are also the same techniques that we use for motivational interviewing. Yeah, mirroring is a really strong tool that, that we'll also discuss a little bit more in a moment. And then finally, action. You need to take um, action to create, to create change, to be an exceptional person in um, health services research and, and in quality improvement research. We often talk about PDSA cycles. That's one way to do it. And then I want to tell you a little bit about a clinical trial that we did, which is another way that we test clinical innovation in emergency medicine. So falls are a very common um, problem in our geriatric patients. And we did a clinical trial where we recruited 110 patients that presented to the ED after a fall. We randomized them to either get the control arm, which was a home safety brochure, or to see both a pharmacist and physical therapist, and for them to do motivational interviewing with the patient at the bedside. And then six months after they left the ED, we followed up with them. When the um, physical therapist and pharmacist saw the patient, they actually introduced their notes into the chart, and those were automatically faxed to the primary care physician at the end of the visit so that we could have some continuity of care. And we also didn't want to expect the physician to get on the phone with every single PCP and communicate what had happened in the ED. So ultimately, we randomized 110 patients in our study. 55 received the intervention arm where they received both a pharmacy and PT consult in the ED for the fall, and 55 were in the control arm. And ultimately, we excluded patients that we thought were going to be that we thought were going to be admitted anyway because they can get PT and pharmacy inpatient. Um, the median age in our in our study was around 80, and they were predominantly female and white, uh, which reflects the population here in Rhode Island. And about 20%, 15% were cognitively impaired. And about a third of our patients lived alone. 20% um, came from assisted living. So what did we find? We didn't actually prolong ED length of stay by having patients see both a physical therapist and a pharmacist. It turns out that 
Many times these patients with falls spend long hours in the emergency department due to imaging, due to uncertainty about their disposition. We had a, a equal rates of hospital admission in both arms, and we saw slightly more patients in the intervention arm go directly to rehab from the ED. And we believe that's because the physical therapist, once they met with patients, recognized they were probably too weak or too vulnerable to go home. Dr. Goldberg, there's a question in the chat. Can yeah. you share what type of interventions the ED pharmacist would make? Yeah, so the ED pharmacist did this uh, intervention called medication therapy management. So they actually um, were taught techniques of motivational interviewing during their uh, ED residencies in physical therapy. And it involves sitting down with the patient and actually saying, you know, tell me about the medications that you're on. And if they would say, I'm on Tylenol with codeine and Vicodin and ibuprofen, they would say, oh, it looks like you're on three medications for pain. Which one do you think is actually working for you? And they would kind of explore um, uh, the top medications that increase fall risk, which are often uh, pain medications, anticholinergic medications like Benadryl, sleep medications, sedative medications. And they would make, the pharmacist would make one to three recommendations for how to reduce fall risk by changing medications. Um, and even though the pharmacist made this recommendation in the ED, we didn't actually ask our ED physicians to make changes to their medication. We actually faxed those recommendations to the primary care doctor. And it turns out the research actually shows that primary care doctors are really hesitant sometimes to change medication in older adults because uh, they're worried about how frail they are. And when a, when a pharmacist makes that recommendation and there is an exciting event like a fall, they're much more likely to make those changes. So. Um, so our patients, we did qualitative interviews after the study, and we found that our patients really loved that aspect of um, getting the opportunity to meet with a pharmacist right after the fall happened and um, learning how to modify their medications. Many of them actually didn't know why they were on certain medications. So in terms of our outcomes, we're really looking to reduce fall-related ED visits. And you can see here, our control arm um, had 24 fall-related ED visits in the uh, intervention period of six months, whereas our intervention group only had nine. And um, we also reduced all-cause ED visits significantly. And you can see there was a reduction in all hospitalizations and fall-related hospitalizations in our intervention arm, but um, that was actually not significant. So just a reduction in ED visits for falls and all causes was significant in follow-up. And this study is important because we don't have a lot of good working models for fall prevention in the emergency department. And we also are only just starting to do any work in geriatric research on care transition. So we know older adults, especially near the end of life, do a lot of ping pong back and forth between settings. They go to the ED, they go home, they go to assisted living, they, come, they go to SNF, they go to another hospital. And this turns out to be very harmful and cause a lot of confusion, confusion with medications, causes a lot of um, harm to the patient because they are not comfortable in these diverse settings. And it's really strenuous and stressful for family. So um, this is one small pilot that shows that perhaps with a brief intervention in the emergency department, we can reduce the, all this frequent care transitioning, and also falls in, in the future. And that's what uh, my career development award is about right now, is doing a much greater study um, using the Apple Watch for fall ascertainment um, in this patient population. So two more slides. You're almost there, everyone. Um, the last of the five traits is psychological comfort. And so I wanna to talk to you a little bit about mirroring. Does anyone know how to mirror behaviors? Has anyone learned anything about mirroring during their training? Not really, okay. So this is a really powerful technique that is not only helpful in negotiations, but it's helpful in creating positive engagement with your patients, with other people that you love. Actually, there's a whole bunch of science on this. Um, and the behavioral research is really compelling. So for instance, waitresses who mirror gain higher tips, sales clerks who mirror achieve higher salaries and positive evaluations. Students um, who use mirroring on another student will get the student, be more likely to get the student to write an essay for them. 
Um, and then they even did a study on speed dating and they found that men evaluate women who mirror more favorably. So it turns out this is really effective. It's very easy to learn. And I'm just gonna give you a couple of these tips, but I recommend you read the book for a lot more techniques on this. And so the first step is really fronting. So if you, um, if you mirror someone, you really need to see them face to face. So making sure that you're squared up to them really shows that you care about them, that, you, um, that you're interested in them. And uh, another technique is the triple nod. So it turns out when, when you're nodding, when the patient is speaking or when a person is speaking, they actually speak three times longer. And that's good because that means that they're growing comfortable with you and they feel that you're a um, good listener. And it's pretty easy to, to remember, okay, I can do a triple nod. And then trying to use the same word. So if this is a person that says fabulous often, try to work in fabulous into your own responses to them without being, um, without putting it on too, too heavy is important. You know, you don't want to come across as, um, as making fun of the person, but just weaving in some of what they're saying. So if they say, no, I'm fine. And you say, uh, and you mirror back, like, I know that you're, you're saying you were fine, but I can, I can tell that there's something that's bothering you. So using their same words is, is a really effective technique. Um, and just try it during your next shift and see what kind of, try it maybe with a more challenging patient and see what type of responses you get. Um, really interested to hear back. The other thing is just to adjust your speech. So if this is a person that's speaking very monotone, speaking monotone back to them is actually helpful. If it's a person that's speaking very formally, so many of our older adults will use much more formal language. And uh, I would suggest that you are less colloquial with them and actually use more formal language. And then avoiding technical terms. This is always a great tip. Uh, you probably don't even notice that you're using technical terms. I have a non-medical spouse and sometimes I talk to them about what's happening and it really helps me realize how technical that we can get after all of this, this, uh, this training. So I uh, really recommend um, that, you, that you pick up this book and learn some of these keys because I think it's gonna make your practice a lot more fulfilling and um, it'll really help you connect with all patients, not just our geriatric patients. And finally, I want to leave you with a, a quote by Joe Navarro, and that's that exceptional individuals are made, not born. So one of the things that I do is I um, volunteer as a, as a Providence school board member, and, and about 90% of our students are um, students of color, and over 60% are um, have families that are below the poverty limit. And I will tell you that uh, it's not that these students are not talented and that they don't have the, the clinical know-how in your case or that they don't have the academic prowess. It's that they have not um, been with people that have high expectations of them. And um, you know, much like the students I take care of, um, I know that each and every one of you in the audience really has um, terrific potential. And I want you to just completely discard the idea that you're born with talent. Um, and this is, uh, I just think so important to instill in our, in our kids, in our mentees, um, to even talk to our mentors about you, this is, you know, not to have a fixed mindset, but be open-minded, realize that you can learn anything and that, um, and that with apprenticeship and learning these five traits, uh, you can really, really become a master clinician or a master of anything that you want to achieve. So with that, thank you so much for having me. I hope um, you've all learned something today and uh, look me up on Twitter, email me. And thanks again, uh, Vank, for the, for the introduction and, and Neha for the introduction. It was great being with you today. Thank you so much, Dr. Goldberg. And Folks, feel free to ask her your questions here. We still have some minutes if, if you want. Are there any questions in the conference room? This is uh, Greg Moore. Hi, Greg. Uh, I'd like to make a comment. One thing I, I do is uh, I follow residents into the room at the discharge time, because uh, I think that's a critical part to make everything right and to ensure understanding. Yes. And uh, double, triple support the point that was made here at the end to talk in the language they can understand 
people will sit there and nod their heads nicely and smile when I can see in their faces they have no clue what's being said. So I will try to, to sometimes redo the discharge in a different language just to make it all good. That is a really great point. Discharge is such a critical time for people to understand what actually happened during the visit. And I think if we shortchange that, that period of time or we don't train on how to do the discharge well, we're really just asking for another ED visit. Yeah, I just wanted to emphasize this, uh, not being technical, especially uh, with yes. your language, but being plain language. Any thoughts, comments, questions from the Zoom audience? And you can type in the chat or uh, send private messages if you don't feel comfortable voicing them. But oh, here's one in the chat. For those of us that work in the community, huge populations of greater than 90 year olds living independently who frequent the ED, what do you think is something we can do to help avoid repeat visits and to ensure they are safe at home? So one of the key things that I teach our residents is that they just need to look at the medication list because it turns out there's so much, there's so much low hanging fruit. Like I'll tell you our pharmacists and so many times they, they talk to patients and they recognize that they were using over-the-counter medications like Benadryl and antihistamines that were really causing them to have delirium, causing their urinary retention, causing them to fall. And this was an over-the-counter med that they could easily stop. And because it's over-the-counter, many people think, oh, it's safe. But when you're over 65, those type of anticholinergics can cause a lot of, um, can cause a lot of damage. The other thing is about 40% of our um, ED, older ED patients go home with a new medication. And we need to really, really recognize that we typically don't have an accurate medication list in the ED. So many of the, many of the, uh, many times when we prescribe, we A, don't ask about what medications they're on or don't attempt to, to reconcile it. And I would say that might work in a younger person that is not on any, you know, is on one medication or two medications, but older adults in this country have a lot of polypharmacy. So they're on five or more meds and there's so many interactions there and they might have renal impairment. So you need to, you know, make sure that you're renally dosing their medication. So, um, so looking at uh, new medications, particularly antibiotics, anything with any anticholinergic effect and, and, thinking twice about whether you have to prescribe that. And if you do prescribe it, giving them some warning about what they might expect and when to stop it um, is super, super important. I'll also say that a lot of pharmacists, retail pharmacists at CVS and, and the other ph pharmacies actually know how to do medication therapy management. And you can tell the patient like, you know, you're on many medications. It's not clear that you need to be on them. Um, having a conversation with your pharmacist or um, with your primary care doctor on whether you can minimize some of these, especially since you've had a fall now, um, is really important. Thank you. And Dr. Helmick, um, you have your hand up. You go first and then Dr. Stanich after. Okay. Dr. Goldberg, thank you. This has just been amazing and thanks for joining us. I, I have a question. This is, I'm going to step back a little bit. I just want to get your insights. So we're on a journey about improving geriatric care. And obviously your institution has, is really a, a couple of paces ahead of us. And can you just talk about that journey in terms of, of what it's done for your patients? Maybe some things you wish you would have done earlier and where you're at now. Yeah. So I will say there really there was no faculty member or, or real focus uh, in geriatric emergency medicine um, before um, I started to take this on. And I think for me, actually going and doing postdoctoral training in the Center of Gerontology at our School of Public Health was really helpful. Um, one partner that I didn't expect uh, to be helpful, but was, I will say, is actually going to the private payers. So I attended a pitch event with Blue Cross Blue Shield and I told them about this uh, medication safety um, intervention that they had started at Grady called Equipped, which is enhancing the quality of um, uh, discharge medication when people leave the ED. And 
Um, I told them that, you know, we could reduce the medication errors we see, we could improve patient satisfaction. And they actually funded me for two years to do uh, this, this, the implementation of Equipped. And we used, uh, we had Epic order sets, we still use them so that trainees in the ED and also experienced clinicians, instead of just picking a random medication to discharge the patient on, um, they would actually pick a medication that was geriatric safe. And it's a low cost intervention because once you work with uh, IT, um, it's you know in your EHR forever. Those order sets are available through, through this um, implementation program. And um, it's just super convenient for our learners to say, okay, this patient has a pneumonia, what are the appropriate antibiotics for you know, the antibiogram we have for their renal impairment. And so I think we really need to leverage some of the technology tools we have to make this easier because, you know, we can't have, um, you know, we have our pediatric uh, focus, we have geriatrics focus, we have an injury prevention focus. There's so many things that our learners have to learn. If we can automate some of it, um, I think that that will make it easier. And I think you're already well on your way with, I know there's a lot of geriatric emergency medicine efforts already happening, including that geriatric ED cart, which uh, I love the idea of that. Um, but I think ultimately finding champions, finding champions within physical therapy, finding champions within um, geriatrics, finding champions within pharmacists that really care about geriatric medicine is helpful. We also started a nursing innovator and aging program where we paid nurses to do their gerontology certificate that worked in the ED so that they could act as nursing champions because having nursing partnership is really important here. So that's another thing that we did that I think um, was really, really helpful to kind of spread the word that older adults are not exactly the same as younger adults and they need special emphasis on things like mobility and cognition and medication. Thank you very much. Dr. Stanich. Hi, Liz. Uh, thanks. I, I just have a comment. I feel like um, as a person who's trying to build awareness around uh, just an adjustment in care. And I've always thought about focusing on the details of the patient, but the way that you frame this to um, discuss, you know, being an exceptional individual, I just found how you put the presentation together and then make it apply to similar concepts we're talking about, but in a really meaningful way, um, it's just a great way to build more awareness around how we need to care and think differently about this subgroup of individuals. So I thank you for uh, thinking creatively and, and the work that you're doing. It's definitely motivated me um, as an early, you know, early staff to, to start trying to do uh, research and, and adjust um, how we're caring. So I just, I just thank you. Oh, that was such a lovely comment. Thank you. I feel like this is a leap of faith to talk about my little FBI penchant <laughs> with everybody, but I think there's a lot of lessons learned for life here. And um, I think right now we're facing a moment in emergency medicine where there is a lot of burnout and there's a lot of questions about how our specialty is going to move forward. And I think we take the focus a little bit away from that and instead focus on, you know, being exceptional people in our, in our life and having exceptional interactions with patients. That's something that we can control. And so, um, so hopefully, hopefully I've motivated you a little bit to, to look into some of these concepts of just becoming an excellent communicator, excellent listener. <laughs> so Liz, just to mirror you for one second, that was fabulous. Um, and thank you so much for coming. We actually have a lot of initiatives based on your gap care work that we're gonna start in our emergency department. I love it. Specifically related to physical therapy and pharmacy as we've discussed. And so um, stay tuned and look forward to all of you, to all the things that we're gonna be changing in our emergency department. And thanks for your time, Liz. Next time I'm, I'm hoping to actually fly out there. <laughs> One day we'll get you out here. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Goldberg. That was incredible. And also, Dr. Rocker, if you're listening, thank you for inviting her to speak to our department. I think it's been very meaningful for all of us. And I hope all of you listening as part of the Always On EM podcast family found that as valuable as we did and enjoyed that. Please don't hesitate to reach out to her. 
her information will be linked in the show notes. Also, you can reach out to the show at alwaysonem on Twitter or Instagram or at alwaysonem at gmail.com. And don't forget to like, comment, and follow. Please come back at the first of the month in February when we have another amazing episode for you. Thank you so much for being part of the family. Until next time. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds 